So for the last three weeks, we've been in this series called uh, Swimming Lessons. And we've been using this metaphor of culture as water to talk about the ways in which we are formed and malformed by culture all around us. Uh, how it's, it's like water to a fish. Always there, influencing us, even when we're unaware of it. And the reason why this is important is because we want to be formed into the way of Jesus. And we want to repent of all the ways that we are malformed. And it's also important because we are an intentionally multi-ethnic community. We want to learn how to love each other well and, and to navigate these different cultural waters that we all swim in. So, for the last three weeks, we've been tracing what Scripture says about culture from Genesis 1 on through today to Genesis chapter 11. So, on week one, we talked about garden culture. This is the, this is the ideal. This is what God intended culture to be like. God blessed humanity with this thing called the Imago Dei. You might remember the Imago Dei? The Imago Dei is this Latin phrase that means the image of God, and it is less about what we possess as, as attributes and more about a calling which, which, with which we are blessed. And this calling is to co-create with God, to be stewards of the earth, stewards of creation, to gather up, I like what N.T. Wright says, to gather up the praises of creation, give them to God. Because all of creation praises God, and we, we get to express that praise to God. And then to reflect into the creation God's loving reign. A part of that is celebrating the unity and the diversity of creation. God created male and female in the image of God. So we together reflect the unity and the diversity of the creator. And it also entails cultivating the earth's resources adding to the earth's resources our human ingenuity and creating culture. So we call this the cultural mandate. Then on week two, we talked about how that went wrong. Remember in the, uh, in the, in the garden, there was two trees. One was the tree of life, and one was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this choice is not between good and evil, as if to say, we just do good and we'll be good. Don't do evil. So this leads to a sort of moralism. We want to avoid that. That's not the choice that's presented here. The choice that's presented here is, are we going to get our life from God, or are we going to get our life from our knowledge of good and evil? Which means we place ourselves in the place of judge instead of God. And what this led to was a distorted picture of God, which led to judgment. Humanity ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil and began to judge one another which led to shame. Remember, shame entered in. And with shame came hiding, and with hiding came blame. And everybody participated in the blame game. And we're still participating in the blame game today, aren't we? I looked at my refrigerator yesterday, and there was an almost empty container of juice because nobody wants to be blamed for drinking the last of the juice. So we're still playing the blame game today. And then last week, in a message called The City of Cain, we talked about how Cain takes this judgment culture that he's inherited from his ancestors, right? And he externalizes it into a social system. It says Cain, after he'd killed his brother in extreme judgment, right? Judgment led to violence, which led to murder. And then after he had killed his brother, he built a city. So we talked about this process of 
creating social systems, that we externalize our cultures into a system, and then that system takes on a life of its own, and then that system then internalizes those values back into us. So we, that's where we're going to pick up the story this week. We're going to pick up the story in chapter 4 after Cain is marked by God for Cain's own protection, actually. And the text says that every, if anyone were to harm Cain, their punishment would be seven times as severe. Take, take note of that. Seven times as severe. So we're going to pick up from Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 17. This is the verse that we read last week. Cain knew his wife intimately. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain built a city and named the city after his son Enoch. Irad was born to Enoch. Irad fathered Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methuselah. I like to say it like that, Methuselah. That's how I learned it. Methuselah fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. And take note of that. The first named Ajah and the second Zillah. Ajah gave birth to Jabal. He was the ancestor of those who lived in tents and owned livestock. See culture at work? Creating tents already. Creating culture. His brother was Jubal, and he's the ancestor of those who played string, stringed and wind instruments. So now they're creating music. We've got tent culture, musical culture. Look at that. Zalah also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the ancestor of blacksmiths and all artisans of bronze and iron. More culture. They're doing it. They're creating culture. uh, Tubal-Cain's sister was Namah. Now, check this out. Verse 23. Lamech says to his wives, Adah and Zalah, listen to my voice, wives of Lamech. Pay attention to my words. I killed a man for wounding me, a boy for striking me. So Cain will be paid back seven times, and Lamech, 77 times. So the the next main character in our story, as we're tracing the rise and fall of human culture, is Lamech. Lamech comes on the scene. He's the ancestor of Cain. And Lamech takes humanity deeper down into the pit of shattered shalom. After Cain externalizes judgment into a social system, Lamech takes it even further. He becomes the first polygamist. You see that in the text? The first polygamist mentioned in the Bible is Lamech, who takes two wives, and this this demonstrates the further disintegration of human culture. God created uh, male and female to be together in this, this, uh, this unit, this family unit, and Lamech destroys that and becomes the first polygamist. So we see that this shattered shalom is multiplying now. And here in verses 23 and 24, Lamech sings a song. He sings a song about the, disint- the further disintegration of human culture. Did you know that sometimes in the Bible, they, it's kind of like a musical, they stop and sing songs? It's like how in a musical the song kind of furthers the plot. This is like that. This is like, okay, something's going on here. 
The author of Genesis, the authors or author of Genesis, wants to draw our attention to something's going on here. So Lamech sings a song. And the song that he sings is a really depressing song, not a happy song. It's a song about the escalation of retribution. He literally says, I killed somebody for wounding me. That's it. They wounded me. I killed them. And then he says, if Cain gets repaid seven times, Lamech is going to get paid back 77 times. Now, is anybody having a little bit of deja vu? Do those numbers sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, they should, because in the gospel according to Matthew, Jesus has a conversation that sounds remarkably similar to this song of Lamech. He says in chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, uh, Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Should I forgive them as many as seven times? You can hear sort of Peter like feeling very generous, right? Can you hear it? Seven times? And Jesus says, no, not just seven times, but rather as many as 77 times. So the culture that Jesus is forming is the antidote to Lamech's culture of escalating violence and death. You see that? It's the anti-Lamech culture. Jesus' culture, instead of an escalation of retribution, is an escalation of forgiveness. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. Jesus reverses Lamech's uh, disintegration of human culture. But unfortunately, the story of cultural disintegration doesn't end here. In chapter 6, the author of Genesis writes, The Lord saw that humanity had become thoroughly evil in the earth, on the earth, and that every idea their minds thought up was always completely evil. <laughs> I always joke that that's like pretty much as bad as it gets, right? Like, does it get any worse than that? The Lord regretted making human beings on the earth. And he's, he was heartbroken. The Lord said, I will wipe off the, of the land the human race that I created. From human beings to livestock to the crawling things to the birds in the sky because I regret I ever made them. That's a sad verse. Very sad. Human culture has disintegrated to the point that God regrets even making humans. Now, I don't have time to get into the story of Noah, which is a beautiful story and, and a complex story, much more complex than maybe we learned in Sunday school. I wish I had time to get into Noah, but for now we're going to have to skip over it. Um, but I would encourage you to read that story. It's a, it's a powerful story, and, and I would love to talk about it with anybody who would be interested. But I do want to draw attention to one detail of Noah's story, and that's this. That Noah was the one who found favor in God's eyes, and God spared Noah's family. But then even Noah messes up, right? After the flood, after God is starting over with Noah's family, Noah gets blitzed, Right? just gets totally smashed, and then there's this really strange incident that happens in a tent, and it involves nakedness and his sons, and I don't know what happened, you don't know what happened, let's not speculate, but something bad happened. So bad that this is the first time slavery shows up in the Bible. Noah curses one of his sons and curses them to be enslaved by the other son. Isn't that crazy? Something bad happened, but that's 
That's a detail from the Noah story. Now, take note of that, that slavery piece. Now, chapter 10 of Genesis is sometimes called the table of nations. Anybody ever heard of that, that term, the table of nations? Because the entire chapter is just a bunch of names, sons born to fathers and their clans and all the languages that they spoke. It's as, it looks as if humanity is finally doing what God commanded humanity to do, which is what? To multiply, fill the earth, cultivate the earth, create cultures, right? They're doing that. They're, they're spreading out, they're filling the earth, they're creating cultures. Three times in this chapter, this is chapter 10, three times the author says that the clan spoke all different languages. Look at that. Verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31. The clan spoke all different languages. But in the middle of the chapter, there's an important passage I want to draw our attention to. Cush, this is verse 8. Cush was also the ancestor of Nimrod. Isn't that a great name? I love that name. That's one of my favorite names in the Bible. Nimrod, who was the first heroic warrior on earth. Since he was the greatest hunter in the world, his name became proverbial. People would say, this man is like Nimrod, the greatest hunter in the world. He built his kingdom in the land of Babylonia with the cities of Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna. Sure. Uh, from there, he expanded his territory to Assyria, building the cities of Nineveh, which is going to show up later in the story, right? Uh, Rehoboth-ur, Kala, and Rasin, the great city located between Nineveh and Kala. So here's another character in our story, Nimrod. Nimrod builds a kingdom in Babylonia. Okay, so this is going to become very relevant here in a second. Nimrod is described as a great warrior, the great warrior, right? The proverbial greatest hunter. And it says that he externalizes his warrior and hunter culture into a kingdom in Babylonia. Now, I want to pause here for just a minute because we've covered a lot of territory in the last 11 chapters of Genesis, right? We've gone from Shalom in the garden all the way up through, you know, Cain killing Abel to Lamech multiplying uh, retribution and violence to now where we're getting to a kingdom in Babylon. So we've gone from, oh, and don't forget slavery. Slavery has entered the story after Noah. So we've gone from love and shalom in the garden to slavery and empire in chapter, in chapter 10. Now, we're going to turn to chapter 11, and this is a big turn, okay? So, in chapter 11, all of a sudden, we start in verse 1, and here's how chapter 11 starts. All the people of the earth had one language and the same words. When they traveled east, they found a valley in the land of uh, Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them hard. They used bricks for stones and asphalt for mortar. They said, come, let us build for, for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. 
and let us make a name for ourselves so that we won't be dispersed over all the earth. Then the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the humans built. And the Lord said, there is now one people and they all have one language. This is what they have begun to do. And now all that they plan to do will be possible for them. Come, let us go down and mix up their language there so they won't understand each other's language. Then the Lord dispersed them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is named Babel, because the Lord mixed up the language of the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them all over the earth. Now, this is, this is, this is a really common um, Bible story that if you grew up in Christian culture, if you grew up in the church, you might have learned this story as a kid. You might have learned it in something like Sunday school. It's okay if you didn't, but a lot of us heard this story in very, at a very young age, and it was somewhat sanitized. We sanitized this story to make it palatable for kids, which is understandable. Here's how you and I may have been taught. This is certainly how I was taught the story of the Tower of Babel. Humanity was unified. Unified in one language. And humanity built a tall tower to the heavens using cooperation and teamwork. (laughs) Let's all band together, work together, you know, and build a tall tower. Then God became worried that this tower might get too tall. Oh no, it's going to reach the heavens. And what happens then? They They become gods, right? So in order to humble humanity... And teach them a lesson about pride. God cursed humanity with different languages and scattered them throughout the earth. That's how I was taught the story. That's how I learned it. Well, there's a few problems with this interpretation, (laughs) to say the least. Okay? Here's problem number one. Where did all the languages go? In chapter 10, there was a whole bunch of different languages. Remember all the clans? In the table of nations, they all had different languages. They're all spreading out. And then all of a sudden in chapter 11, everybody has one language. And there's no explanation of how that happened. Okay, that's problem number one. Problem number two, listen to what Tim Mackey says of the, of the Bible project. This is, this is critical. When I learned this, I was like, okay. Tim Mackey says, Our English Bibles translate the name of the city and the tower in Genesis 11 as Babel. This is the Hebrew word, Babel, that occurs 262 times in the Old Testament. And every other time it's translated, it's translated Babylon. So why do all modern English translations render the word as Babel? It's because of a clever Hebrew wordplay that's hard to reproduce in English. Our English translates, our English Bibles translate um, Babel as Babel in order, in order to honor the wordplay, but in so doing, they obscure an even more important connection. This story is about the genesis of Babylon, and Babylon is the most infamous bad guy in the Old Testament. After Babylon grew into an empire, it came to represent the worst of humanity's pride and rebellion. The, Israelites prof- the Israelite prophets railed against the kings of Babylon and accused them of having delusions of grandeur 
Remember Nebuchadnezzar and his delusions of grandeur? The empire is later responsible for the Israelites' exile and was described as a larger-than-life enemy. The legacy of Babylon even lived on after the empire collapsed in 539 B.C. So, problem, problem uh, number one, where did all the languages go, gets explained when you understand that Babel is Babylon. All of a sudden it's like, oh, what does Babylon do? Babylon conquers people, oppresses them, and strips them of their languages. That's step one. Step two is you indoctrinate them or enculturate them into the culture of Babylon. Where do we see evidence of this? Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 starts out during the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered that guy, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are all all well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. Do you see that? And then they even change their names. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael becomes Meshach, and Ezariah becomes Abednego. The reason why all those different languages from Genesis chapter 10 abruptly disappear in chapter 11 isn't because humanity suddenly decided to band together in teamwork and cooperation after that cycle and spiral of human culture getting more and more violent. Remember that? They didn't all of a sudden go, you know what? That whole violence thing, we're sort of over that now. Let's all work together and build a tower. That's not what happened. What happened instead was that Babylon stripped everyone they conquered of their languages and the cultures and and uh, enforced upon them Babylonian culture. Which leads to problem number three. How did the tower get built? Since we know that the tower didn't get built by teamwork and cooperation, how do you think the tower got built? Slavery. That's right. Remember I told you slavery shows up for the very first time right before chapter 10 in the story of Noah. So it wasn't like God said, oh no, humanity's working together as a team. Let's stop them from doing that. And instead, let's, um, you know, teach them a lesson about their pride. No. God was grieved by the oppression and the slavery that was going on in Babylon. Large brick structures in the ancient Near East did not get built by teamwork and cooperation. 
Do you remember what happened in Egypt? One book later, in the book of Exodus, the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt and forced to make bricks to build Pharaoh's structures. That's one book later. So how did we get it in our heads that, like, the Tower of Babel was built by cooperation? How did we get there? This is the story, the Tower of Babel is the story of the advent of empire. And it's the advent of cultural captivity. In fact, this is the advent, the introduction in the Bible, of one of the Bible's number one bad guys, like Tim Mackey said. Babylon becomes an archetype. It becomes a symbol for empires that exercise satanic power and rule over people. All throughout the Bible, Babylon is the symbol of that kind of destructive force. In fact, Jesus of Nazareth is born into an empire like Babylon, Rome. And the New Testament apostles refer to Rome as Babylon. Check this out. 1 Peter 5.13. The fellow elect church to the fellow elect church in Babylon. Wait, wait, wait. The fellow elect church in Babylon greets you, and so does my son Mark. So, so Peter's just straight up calling Rome Babylon. That's it. He just says, we're in Babylon. <laughs> and then there's this verse, or these two verses from uh, Revelation 17. A mysterious name was written on her forehead, Babylon the Great, mother of all prostitutes and obscenities in the world. I could see that she was drunk, drunk with the blood of God's holy people who were witnesses for Jesus. I stared at her in complete amazement. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with understanding. The seven heads of the beast represent the seven hills where the woman rules. Now look at this. Watch this. We know from history that Peter was executed in Rome. So Peter isn't talking about Babylon. He's talking about Rome. And the author of Revelation, John of Patmos, is also talking about Rome. Check this out. Check out, check out this slide. Can we throw up this slide? Okay. The founding myth of Rome is that Romulus and Remus were raised by a she-wolf. This is, a, this is a, a depiction of that founding myth. Now go to the next slide. This is a coin from, what is it, 69 AD. This is a coin from 69 AD. And see what you have here is the goddess Roma sitting on the seven hills of Rome. And there's Romulus and Remus down there with the she-wolf. And there's a map of the seven hills of Rome. So the, the author of Revelation is not even being very discreet. The author of Revelation is basically saying, Rome is Babylon, this horrible monster that is devouring God's people. It's one of the most overt references uh, to Rome in the text. Empires that exalt themselves to the place of God and demand allegiance that is due only to God are Babylonian. 
They're Babylonian empires. They are empires that are in rebellion against God's calling to steward creation, to celebrate its diversity, to fill the earth, and cultivate human flourishing. Instead, empires oppress, they destroy, and they produce cultural captivity. Babylon is a character in the biblical story that represents this type of shalom-shattering cultural captivity. That's what Babylon represents. Here's something really profound that I read from an author, uh, from a scholar named Brian Blunt. He's a professor at Princeton. Listen to what Brian Blunt says. He says, Rome has always been something more than a historical entity that thought to capture the ancient world and chart its course. Rome, even for John, symbolized the human inclination to set oneself up in opposition to the inclinations of God and thereby claim for oneself God's privileged position as the Almighty. Sound familiar? Sounds like the garden, doesn't it? Sounds like the way in which humanity set itself up as judge with the knowledge of good and evil instead of God. For John, the historical Rome wasn't new in this regard. It merely followed the mutinous human pattern already established by even more ancient powers like Babylon. Boom. Rome, too, for all her claims to special status and unique imperial identity, was nothing more than a miserable, demonically driven mimic. That's good. Miserable, demonically driven mimic. So for people of faith, were all the Romes that would follow the great empire's metaphoric lead, the Roman force of American slavery, and the institutionalized racism that followed in its wake, were mimics of the same idolatrous belief that some humans maintained their superiority their superior almighty status. Woo! That's like some profound stuff. Bruce Metzger echoes these words. He echoes the sentiment. He was also a Princeton prof. He's since gone to be with the Lord, um, but he's quoted in a book by Michael Gorman. Here's what Bruce Metzger says. Babylon is allegorical of the idolatry that any nation commits when it elevates material abundance, check this out, material abundance, military prowess, technological sophistication, imperial grandeur, racial pride, and any other glorification of the creature over the creator. Babylonian. All that stuff is Babylon. And finally, the bishop, N.T. Wright, one of the world's most renowned New Testament scholars, writes, The abiding and overriding lesson for the church, then and now, should nevertheless be clear. The brutal but seductive civilizations and national empires which ensnare the world by promising luxury and delivering slavery gain their power from the monster, the system of imperial power. Some have called this the domination system a system which transcends geographical and historical limitations and reappears again again, and again in every century. So that's the connection of Babylon to history.
In a few weeks, in May, I think May 20th, we're going to celebrate the season of Pentecost on the Christian calendar. And I've heard it said a dozen times or more that Pentecost reverses the curse of Babel. But the problem with that thought is there was never any curse in the story of the Tower of Babel. There was never any curse. The story of the Tower of Babel is the story of the rise of an empire and the rise of cultural captivity. And what God does by intervening in that story is not curse people, but to liberate people, to restore to them their original diversity that was, that was displayed in chapter 10. And the original diversity that was robbed from them by Babylon. What God does in this story is return people to the original calling that God gave all humanity to fill the earth, multiply and create cultures, including languages, producing human flourishing. So what we've been calling a curse is God's liberating blessing. Now, yeah, it is still a judgment upon Babylon, for sure. But it is a restoration of this divine calling and this divine sending of people out into the world to create culture, including languages. So here's what I want to draw our attention to. You and I can live into a Babylonian identity, or we can live into what I'm calling a Revelation 7 community. Here's what it says in Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and there was a great crowd that no one could number. They were from every nation, every tribe, every people, and every language. And they were standing before the throne and before the Lamb. The community and the movement that Jesus inaugurates is a foretaste of that vision, a restoration of our human calling to bear the image of God in all of our beautifully diverse ways. If we're ever going to see the water that we're swimming in and start to recognize the ways that we are more culturally influenced by Babylon than by this heavenly vision of, Romans, of Revelation 7, then we've got to understand that this was God's intent all the way through. All the way through the Bible. The story of the Bible tells this story of God celebrating the beautiful diversity of God's creation. Babylonian captivity is a theme that gets repeated over and over again. You know that, um, did you know that for 70 years, the papacy, I've been watching this documentary on the Pope on uh, CNN. Have you guys seen this? CNN has this documentary on the papacy, and it's like six episodes long. I've been watching it. Did you know for 70 years the papacy was in France? Uh, it was in Avignon, right? And uh, this was a very contentious time in Catholic history. Uh, There's a lot of murder and intrigue. It's actually really fascinating. But they call this period of the papacy being in France, they call it the Babylonian captivity of the papacy. It's like the papacy's been exiled into France, right? And then Martin Luther picks up on this language. He calls the whole period of Catholic history the Babylonian captivity of the church, right? Leading up to the Reformation, of course. Well, one of my mentors 
And one of my professors in seminary, Dr. Sung Chan Ra, also picks up on this language of Babylonian captivity. And here's what he writes about global Christianity. Fifty years ago, if you were to ask, if you were asked to describe a typical Christian in the world, you could confidently assert that that person would be an upper middle class white male living in an affluent and comfortable Midwest suburb. If you were asked the same question today, that answer would be more likely, you would, uh, the answer would more likely be a young Nigerian mother on the outskirts of Lagos, a university student in Seoul, South Korea, or a teenage boy in Mexico City. European and North American Christianity continues to decline, while African, Asian, and Latin American Christianity continues to increase dramatically. Check this out. In the year 1900, Europe and North America comprised 82% of the world's Christian population. In 2005, Europe and North America comprised 39% of the world's Christian population, with Asian, African, and Latin American Christians making up 60% of the world's population. By 2050, African, Asian, and Latin American Christians will constitute 71% of the world's Christian population. Do you see that graph? Look at that. It's like, it's like a reversal. In the span of 100 years, the demographics of global Christianity have completely shifted. And yet, European and North American cultural modes and modalities and norms continue to dominate. They continue to captivate culturally Christianity. And this, I'm claiming, is Babylonian. Here's Dr. Ra again. When one culture is elevated above another, we are stating that one culture and the individuals in that culture are made more in the image of God than others. The image of Revelation 7 points to a gathering of all believers across all races, ethnicities, and cultures. The call for those who are outside of Western Christianity is to lift up the message of the gospel through the unique expression of the image of God and the cultural mandate found in each culture. Instead, we fail to fulfill our human capacity to create culture, reflecting the image of God by elevating one culture over another. In the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we have seen the rise and the fall of human culture. We've gone from the garden to the tower of Babylon. We've seen how shalom has been shattered by, by judgment, by violence, and now by empire and cultural captivity. To see the water that we're swimming in, we need to see the ways that we are being influenced by this sort of cultural captivity. So here's two questions. That's it. Just two questions that I want us to reflect on. You can reflect on it today. You can reflect on it right now. You can reflect on it this week. But I just want, to ask, I want you to ask yourselves these questions. I'm going to ask myself these questions. Have we bought into the lie that assimilation is God's will? That's one question. Have we bought into the lie that assimilation is God's will? Question number two. Have we bought into the lie that Western white culture is superior to others? These are tough questions, but they are necessary. If we're going to see the water that we're swimming in, 
here in St. Paul, Minnesota, in the United States of America in 2018, we've got to ask ourselves these questions. I think they're vital. And it's through wrestling with questions like these that we're going to begin to see the water that we're swimming in. But right now, here's, what I, here's how I want to close this. I want to close this message by inviting us, inviting us together, to take a step towards that Revelation 7 community and a step away from the, the, the cultural captivity of Babylon. When we come to this table, we come to this table proclaiming something very important. We're proclaiming that we, in all of our uniqueness, in all of our different cultural forms and modes, we bring all of that to our worship of the Lamb. And that's the way it's going to be now, and that's the way it's going to be for all eternity. So we, in a way, are practicing for the age to come. In the age to come, there will be no assimilation. There will only be celebration of our unity with diversity gathered around the throne of the Lamb. And so when we come to this table, we are practicing for that future. We are living into that future even now. So I'm going to ask the musicians to come back and play softly, and I'm going to ask you, when you're ready, to come forward and to have these questions in your mind and to have this community in your mind, this vision of heaven, the age to come, the new creation that we are coming together with all of our diversity to worship the Lamb.